0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 334 and I had a conversation with Dr. Philip Nitschke. In 1996, Philip became the first doctor in the world to administer a legal, lethal, voluntary injection. He is the founder of Exit International, a foundation that believes, quote, it is the fundamental human right for every adult of sound mind to be able to plan for the end of their life in a way that is reliable, peaceful, and at a time of their choosing. Philip is also the co-author of The Peaceful Pill and Killing Me Softly. There is a trigger warning for this episode as it deals with suicide and death. In other news, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show, susanruth.com to learn more about me and my art and music, and please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, please check out my new relationship and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at YouTube.com slash AreWeThereYetPodcastShow. Are you digging the ad-free Hey Human podcast? Would you like to support the show? There's a contribute tab at HeyHumanPodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to show support for the show and to spread the love and to help with the algorithms. Okay, uh, be well, be kind. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Dr. Philip Nitschke, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Uh, I read about you and immediately was intrigued and wanted to have you on the show you are the founder of Exit International.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I, I started it up in around about nineteen uh, ninety eight or nine. We we had a piece of legislation in the Northern Territory of Australia which was overturned, and I started it after that. The law only lasted. It came in in nineteen ninety six, uh, allowing a doctor to help a terminally ill patient die. But it was overturned by the federal government of Australia after only eight months because the federal government thought that the Northern Territory, which is where I'm from, was a little out of control and they didn't like what was happening up there. It was the world's first legislation that allowed a doctor to give a lethal injection to a uh, terminal patient, a lethal voluntary injection. So... uh, it was very controversial back then, and it still is a little today, uh, but it came in and it was actually the world's first. Oregon came in uh, the following year in 1997-98, and by that stage, the Australian law had been overturned.
0: I'd like to dig in a little bit to your upbringing. Where did you grow up? What was your interest as a kid? And this is quite a specific path you're on now. What yeah. led you in that direction?
1: Well, I, I my, my background didn't, I don't think, really led me to this topic in any particular way. I I was uh, I was uh, brought up in in South Australia, which is another part of Australia, the southern a southern state, and I had done a fairly, uh, I suppose, in some ways, a fairly conventional background i was the first person i suppose from our family who went to university i did i did my background was in in science and i did physics and i did a phd in physics uh on lasers and i was very interested in that but i was also i suppose more interested in social reform and i got involved in the northern territory because that's where we have uh, the highest number of indigenous uh, people first nations people and i went up there to work with uh, those people looking at the ways that they could get some of their land back, social justice issues, uh, and quite like the place. There's not, not many people live in the Northern Territory. It's kind of remote and Darwin is the main centre. Uh, but after a number of years, uh, things uh, things uh, changed and I decided to take the chance to go back and retrain. So I went and retrained in medicine when I was, I don't know, 35, 40 and finished, and went back to the Northern Territory as a sort of geriatric doctor, uh, and uh, not doing geriatrics, but just referring to my own age. Uh, and then I, uh, and then I, um, was really just working there as a doctor when I heard about the fact that the uh, this government in this little government, it was only a very small parliament, only twenty-five politicians. The leader of the government said he wanted to introduce a law that would allow a terminal patient to get help from a doctor to die. I hadn't even thought much about the issue. I don't think it had been mentioned in, I went to down, I went and did my medical training in Sydney University, but I don't think anyone had mentioned the E word at Sydney. And I just, I thought that's a good idea, rolled over and went back to sleep. And then I was very surprised by the out, uh, the reaction that this proposal suddenly took with strong opposition, perhaps predictably from the church, but more worryingly from my new profession, that is the medical profession, who were strongly opposed. And they were very uh, vocal in their opposition. They said that if such a law were to pass, they would make sure that there was no one, no doctor in the Northern Territory would support it. Now, I was very surprised by that. And I thought that the medical professional were overstating their position a little and I was annoyed too because it was very clear that the people that is the public thought it was a good idea so I just said well you're saying no doctor will support it but we will I will support it and I managed to drag up 25 other doctors and we took out a, a full page ad in the local press but it was really a political involvement that got me started rather than any particular experience I mean I hadn't had any much to do with um, terminally ill patients My in medicine I was working more with with people using and drug and addiction issues Not, so no so nothing to do with geriatric people or people dying of terminal disease but it just was the situation where I was quite clear that if I was in that situation I would want that option I couldn't see why anyone else wouldn't so I supported it that way uh, and uh, that put me at that put me at variance with most of my new profession and uh, when the law did surprisingly, it surprisingly passed it only passed by one vote. It was thirteen votes to twelve. Very, very uh, heated uh, political debate, but it did pass. And uh, then I found myself as, the, as being known about as one of the very few people who supported it as a, as a doctor. And part of this new law was it was a very what we call medical law. I had you had to find two doctors to support you. You had to be terminally ill. You had to go through all sorts of steps to prove you were eligible. And then I found myself in a position of trying to make this rather difficult law work. And uh, that's where I really found myself, because the politicians involved, especially the one who started sort of said, well, I've given you your law. And he went back to, he said, I've done what I have to do. Now it's up to you. But getting, getting it working was actually quite hard. So I suppose that was a very torrid eight months of trying to get it work. I found four people four people who wanted to use the law i could have given a lethal injection but uh i didn't want to really i mean i was very passionate about their right but i couldn't see why they couldn't do it themselves so i i built a machine and the machine allowed them to look at some questions on a laptop and we said very blunt questions and the last question on the screen was if you press this button you will die do you wish to go ahead and it really it was just a, a laptop which, which switched on to a, uh, to a syringe driver which drove the drugs. I mean, I had, to, I had to put the needle into the vein and I had to load the machine up. So I wasn't trying to say I wasn't involved, but I did think that I, I didn't want them to uh, – I was worried that they might be seeing me as in some ways wanting to share the responsibility. I said, it's, yours, it's your choice. I'm, I'm happy for you to take that step but I don't want to be part of the decision. If you want to die, that's good, that's your business. Here's a machine. So uh, I set it up, they, and in the case of four people, they, they, uh, they used that machine. They pressed the button, the last button, and uh, I was there, I had to be present, but I was on, on the other side of the room and I watched. The machine started, the drugs were delivered, the person died, uh, and people often said, why did you build such a strange machine? I mean, why don't you just go around there and give a lethal injection? And I said, well, that would have put me right in their personal space. Uh, And by getting myself out of that space, it allowed people I thought who should be there, mainly the people who loved them. In the case of the first person was Bob Dent. His wife was able, he pushed the machine to the side. He held his wife. I was on the other side of the room. My main concern was that this machine, which wasn't the finest piece of technology that I'd ever built, was going to work, but it did work, and he he died in her arms. And I I thought that's – and it was quite a nice – it was a nice – I thought, this is good. Uh, it was used four times, but then the law was overturned and Australia went back into the dark ages. Uh, the uh, The machine went off into the British Science Museum in London, where it is now sitting in a glass case, and I set up Exit International because – at that stage, people didn't come, stop coming along saying we want choice, but there was no, le- there was no legal framework after that. So for the next 20-odd years, a bit less, I spent my time running around trying to work out ways in Australia that people could have choice and that really revolved around giving people information about how they could get the drugs, which drugs work, which drugs don't work, how you can take this step yourself because suicide's not a crime. It's only the assistance which is the crime. So I did that for quite a while until uh, even uh, the idea that, that my ideas changed. I started to stop seeing this as a, a privilege for the very sick that was medically controlled into something that I saw was far more far, far more fundamental. And I, I, I started to see this as a human right, that it doesn't really matter. It's not up to me. In fact, I was challenged by one of two of the people who saw me. They said, it's not up to you to decide who you should get help you you're just a technician give us the information we will make the decision I thought that was correct I, I couldn't see the reason why I should be doling out uh, my decision to assist people on the basis of those who satisfied my idea of what suffering was and people would come along with with non-medical reasons for wanting to die and some of them were very compelling and the idea that you had to try and reach some level of suffering, which is what the law tries to do, and that's true now of all the laws that are around the world except Switzerland, where, for example, the law in California now, you've got to achieve a certain level of suffering, and that's got to be determined or assessed by some usually medical professionals. And if you reach that level, you're deemed to be eligible to get this, this amazing the help to die. So it's really a privilege for the very sick, which you don't control. You only get the option of being able to ask the question. The decision is made by the medical professionals. Now, my thoughts changed, and I thought, look, this is something more fundamental than that. This is a human right, and it's really not up to me or anyone else to decide why you want to die. The only criteria, as I would see it, is as long as you're a person of sound mind, you know what you're doing, you're an adult, and you've decided you want to divest yourself of this precious gift of life, well, I think that decision needs to be respected. And just because I don't agree with your views or reasons is really irrelevant. If you've made those decisions and you want to take that step, you should have that option. Now, that put me, when I started to describe those views and those thoughts at uh, serious uh uh, opposition with the, the medical profession who after about 10 or 20 years or in Australia was starting to come around to the idea of, well maybe we could help people that are just about to drop dead maybe if we can just help them but that idea the medical profession was sort of slowly coming around but as long as we run the show it was the medical professions we'll we'll support it but only if we run it which was a bit of a change from back in 1996 where they just wanted it out for any reason but in any event when I started to say no this is a human right and This came to cause serious trouble in Australia. People that I decided that I should give information to had non-medical reasons for wanting to die. That caused difficulty with my own professional association, the Australian Medical Association. They decided these views were dangerous views. And then we went through a rather protracted legal argument. They decided that I should be deregistered. Uh, I said that uh, I had took them through legal channels, I got my medical registration back. Uh, but they then, well, okay, you can be a doctor practicing, but you can no longer be an author of the book. I, I, by this stage, with my partner and co co author Fiona Stewart, we had written a book which allowed people to read about how you can how you can peacefully and reliably end your life. Now that book called this contract. Controversial, it was banned in Australia. So we published it in America, but it was banned in Australia. The only book banned in the last fifty years in Australia, which is something of an achievement, I suppose. But in any in any event, they said, "All right, you can have your medical registration back, but you can no longer be an author of that book." And that was one step too far. So, in a very symbolic and flamboyant way, I set fire to my medical registration and headed overseas and uh that's where i've been ever since we've we've moved to first to switzerland but now in the netherlands where the climate is much more uh open to discussion of things such as should this be a right or is it just as i said some form of medical privilege and that's that's where the situation is now uh i've got permanent residency in the netherlands and i i might miss some aspects of australia mainly the the physical nature of the countryside etc but i don't miss the uh, the climate there i mean now 25 years later they've sort of slowly catching up they've just brought in new laws which sort of really mimic the laws you've got in oregon and washington and california and and canada and and of course netherlands came in in 2001 belgium luxembourg and they're mimicking those what we would call medical laws But the goal I would see is something which enshrines it as a right. And the only place that does that is Switzerland, which has got quite a unique legislative framework.
0: It is interesting that, as you mentioned there, yes, they are legal ways to end one's life, but they are heavily regulated still. I don't know that I would consider it fully the choice of the person that's making the quote unquote choice. When my uncle passed away, he was in a lot of pain, dying of uh, a bone cancer. Uh, and I just ins- he was so it was so hard to see him in that state, and I kept saying, "Can't we do something?" And even my uncle was saying, "Can't we do something?" And even in the state of California, where this was happening, the people in charge of his medical care were very nervous about it and sort of did this cloak-and-dagger style of acceptance. We'll, yeah. we'll step out of the room situation. It wasn't really what I would consider mitigated by them. They just kind of washed their hands and walked out.
1: Yes. It, it's, it, the, the laws that have come in around the world are pretty, pretty much all modeled on that original idea that you have to be sick, and you've got to be able to demonstrate that, that you're sick enough to be eligible. And that means that the laws try to codify the degree of suffering. It's a very hard thing to do legislatively, and that's why you see these legislational pieces of law under challenge through the courts all the time. And what we've seen in Canada recently is that there's been legal challenges saying, well, how come that person gets help and I don't get help because they've got more suffering than I've got? What's wrong with my suffering? And those those sort of things will keep going. And so the law gets made more liberal, and that certainly happened here in the Netherlands. But it's still a medical law, and people say, people say the Dutch are out of control because it's a very liberal law here, but you've still got to be sick. And the, this comes up most significantly or most commonly we see is where we have couples who want to die together, where they've been together for most of their, all their lives, and one person gets sick and is dying, and the other person says, I want to die when they die. Now, in the Netherlands, you can't do that. I mean, the person who's sick can get help. But the person who's not sick, the partner who isn't sick, has to either play some sort of game and say, "Well, I'm a bit sick," or make up something. But they can't easily use the law, and that's and that's because it's not a right. It's not it's not a right. It's a privilege for the sick. And so that's an example where I would argue we need a different framework. And I spent a lot of time in Switzerland because Swiss the Swiss have a different framework, and they've had it since 1939, whereby. Uh, where it's a right, you have a right to die. You don't have to, you don't have to prove that you're suffering to be able to get assistance to die. The only requirement under Swiss law is that the person providing the assistance is not doing it for malicious purpose or or some sort of financial gain. So uh, it's quite possible there for a couple, for example, to go to Switzerland. One may be sick, one may be not, and they can both die together there under Swiss law. But that's the only place in the world. And the Swiss have also got that unique situation where they haven't restricted it to Swiss nationals, which I think is kind of impressive because they had the option to do that a while back. I went to referendum, but they didn't do that. So there's a quite a, quite a flow, as you may probably realise, there's quite a flow of people, a lot of them from the US, heading to Switzerland to take advantage of what I would describe as their civilising legal framework, even from the states in the US, which have, well, the best of the u s laws, which are still these medically restricted models
0: mm-hmm. philosophically I've always found the argument quite interesting about uh, the people that are against assisted suicide that they're like, "Oh well, every human is sacred, and they should be able to and and they should be able to live a long life, even if it's sick and I wonder if part of that isn't from people's own fear of death. I think humanity is terrified of dying for the most part.
1: Yes, I think that's true. And, I, I mean, it's our own, It's our, when I say our, I mean, Western medical societies which are exposed to Western medicine, which in some ways the profession has led or likes to project this idea that we can solve anything, we can make you live forever effectively. If you've got a disease, we'll fix it. And it's quite interesting because it leads, I think, is an inevitable flip side to that is there's, an, there's this sort of fear of the process of dying, which becomes more and more embedded. When I first went to the Northern Territory, I worked with Indigenous communities there and the, the health was dreadful. I mean, the conditions were third world. The diseases were rife. I, when I first got there, I was taken aback by the fact that there was a lot of leprosy present in the camps. I thought leprosy was well and truly gone, but it's not in those in those communities. And people were dying at relatively young ages, but what I noticed was that the children in the camp uh, were exposed to this. So they would they would they would see people that were there and who were dying. In fact, you couldn't get to the age age of a few months without seeing someone die. And I was able to contrast that with my society, our society, where the age at which you see your first dead body goes up every year. We're so good at re- removing the dying out of our society and petitioning them away. So a- as a child, you-, you probably haven't seen a dead body. You might see 100 a night on television, but you won't see any dead body in the flesh, so to speak, until you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s. What I mean, it's, it's pushed up because we, we petition away, especially from the children. And I started to think when I was there that this is a rather unhealthy, that the healthier view is the people who see, if you like, the inevitability of the process. They're meshed with it from an early age. They understand their own mortality. And uh, I think there's something a little pathological about the Western approach which tries to say that death is just another problem which we can just solve with a bit more technology and a bit more money, and we'll have it all, all sorted. Uh, and that, that leads, I think, to this uh, almost irrational fear uh, and, uh, and I said, the petitioning, so the children should never get exposed to it. And that leads to, a, I think, a rather unhealthy society.
0: It is extraordinary, the level of suffering humans are not only capable of, but to inflict upon others, but also that they'll bear witness to and not have it. I mean, here in Los Angeles, you go down Skid Row, people sleeping on the street, you know, pooping on the street, they're covered in scabs, a lot of them, and, and they're clearly not well, whether it be mentally or physically, but that's acceptable. We've all had the pet that's wandered off to die because it wants to die with its own dignity and then i i know friends who have kept their animals alive that clearly the animal's suffering because they can't bear to let them go and i get that and i get the feeling of it but it's cruel and unusual to me but i think i'm weird because i have always felt the sense that we deserve dominion fully and wholly over ourselves and that if it's A choice, for example, suicide for suicide's sake, you know, nobody wants to see that happen. But if, but I have no right to control someone else's desire to do that. Are there people that attempt suicide and fail and then deeply regret their attempt and it changes everything? Yes, but we don't have the benefit of asking those who have passed on for the most part. I mean, I suppose if you Um, talk to a medium (laughs) or something, but we don't don't have a a true benefit of hearing back and say, did you make the right choice? Are you happy? Is everything good? We cool? You know?
1: (laughs) And I mean, the, the standard approach seems to be in many of our nations that they are so sensitive about what they see as the suicide statistics. There's this sort of something that we have to try and remove or lower the numbers of people. It's like they see it as an index of something wrong with our society, the fact that there's a certain percentage of people who are suiciding. So the approach seems to be to do anything one can and spend any amount of money from uh, official sources to try and reduce the suicide rate. The standard approach to do that seems to be to try and remove information so people don't know how to go about it and certainly to remove anything that might assist them. So your chances of getting access to the best drugs are almost impossible. They're incredibly restricted. The barbiturate, which is used, but predominantly, one has to go to great lengths to try and get that drug, uh, and the, the 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 penalties for either possession or to importation are serious. And it's as if the underlying philosophy of the state is, you the idea to lower the suicide rate is to stop people knowing how to do it. So if you don't know how to do it, you'll never do it. So you just sit there and smile and live on forever.
0: Right. The humans are quite resourceful, however. But
1: you've got to be.
0: And I'm not saying that if somebody is thinking about doing those things, I'm also in favor of trying to figure out why and getting to the bottom of that. I think therapy is wonderful and important. I don't think, for example, our military, when they come home, their suicide rate is quite high because I feel like they're, they're abandoned a lot and not cared for mentally for what they've endured. And so if there is a a way to help people, absolutely, I'm all for that. Mm. But I think that in some cases, there is no help. And then what horrible suffering to go through for an entire, let's say you live to be 70, to carry those burdens for 40 years or something. And I know that you have an age limit. It's what, is it 50 and over?
1: Yeah, it's a sort of a, it's a sort of an interesting thing. I, as I indicated, as a philosophy, if you like, or if you like my philosophy, is that if you're a rational adult, you should have this option. And people say, "Well, so what do you mean, eighteen-year-olds?" And I say, "Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> we're quite happy to give eighteen-year-olds guns and tell them to go and kill other people. So it seems a little bit of an inconsistency to say, on one hand, yes, okay, well, you can be part of some army and kill people, but you cannot kill yourself. And this this is an interesting interesting aspect." However, because we got into such as an organisation, it causes such difficulty when you start giving information about how to take this step to people who are, and as you said, we've got a rather arbitrary uh, age of fifty, and that came about really for political reasons, where to try and lessen some of the attacks on the organisation, we said, all right, well you've got to have significant life experience, whatever the hell that means. I mean, it's a sort of vague idea, but it's a way of sort of saying, okay, well. Once you're over the age of 50, people say, what's wrong with me? I'm 49. And so we get this stuff all the time. Age is a constant problem. My personal view is that if you're over 18, you should have this information, but that's not the view of the organisation, which seems to be more worried. Well, we're more worried about the sort of political fallout and we've had various attempts to close this down. So by restricting it to the over 50s, it makes it a little easier but there's still a lot of issues about the fact that there are, of course, powerful forces in society who don't want anyone ever having access to the information or certainly the means to take this step. So if if something comes up and turns out to be a, a, a new way of ending your life peacefully, and that's happened in the last few years with the advent of a couple of substances, which are readily easy to obtain, there's huge efforts put to try and suddenly move to try and make these hitherto easy to acquire substances, almost impossible to us. It keeps in a cat and mouse sort of way. As soon as something looks like it's opening up as a new strategy, it's closed down. And uh, the idea, as I said, it's a a quaint notion. It's as if the state seems to have this idea that the only reason any of us are alive is because we haven't worked out how to die. And so you can't go telling people how to die because they'll just go out there and do it. Which is kind of kind of a quaint notion. What we find amongst our members who are predominantly about 75 years of age in in exit is that they don't want to die, but they want to know that they can if they want to. they want to know they've got the choice. In other words, they want to have something in the cupboard. So if things go bad, they just got to go to the cupboard. They don't want to have to wait around till they get sick enough to then go off and stand in front of a panel of doctors and have the doctors decide, well, come back in a week's time when you're a little bit sicker. They say, I make the decision and I want to know that in the cupboard I've got the means to take that step. So uh, that's not going away. We've, In the 20 years or so I've been involved in this issue, it just gets stronger and stronger, the demand by people to have uh, the options to reliable, especially reliable and especially peaceful strategies, which they don't want to use tomorrow, but they certainly want to know they have the ultimate access and control of.
0: My friends and I joke about that all the time. If we suffered some sort of massive stroke or or some such, who's gonna come in with the pillow just to take us out of our misery if the doctors won't?
1: Yeah, well, I sort of t- tell people every day when I run these workshops, we haven't run them for a couple of years because of COVID, but we're about to start them up with one in London coming up. I know what's gonna happen. There'll be a crowd of people there and they're all gonna say the same thing. Where do I get the drugs? That will be the question. Where do I get the drugs? Not, and not just, and a lot of there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there. They want to know, they want to know the, they want to have a real, they want to know the exact truth. They want to know what drugs and where to get them. Uh, and, and how do they know they're okay? These are the big questions that come up all the time. Okay, I buy in the black market. How do I know I've got the right thing? How can I test? How can I verify? All those sorts of issues. But when they get that information, that's really all they want. They that's good. They've got that problem solved. Now I can get on with having. A better life. And when I've got this feeling, I don't can't exactly prove it, that if you gave out bottles of Nembutel to every 70 year old, you, that you would prolong life expectancy because you'd take away a huge number of people's anxiety and their their possibility of acting in a precipitous way because the problem solved. they got it in the cupboard. They know all they got to do is open up and drink it. They're going to die. And that solves that problem. They stop worrying. When they start worrying, they get, okay, now I can get back to having a good life. But that worry, that sort of building worry that tends to grow in people as they age and suddenly becomes very, very preoccupying concern over a certain age, it's very hard sometimes to try and explain this to people of a younger age. I talk talk a number of times to university uh, students and the like. Sometimes they have the greatest difficulty understanding why there's this whole cohort of elderly types out there who want access to lethal drugs. They think this is kind of bizarre. But I don't think it's bizarre. It all makes a lot of sense. And I kind saying, say, well, wait till you get to that age and you might yourself suddenly decide that it would be a good idea if you had access to those drugs. And that's why one of these initiatives in the Netherlands, the so-called Tired of Life Bill, which is really set up to try and see if we could put substance to that concept the idea of a law that would allow every person over a certain age access to uh, their own lethal drugs, like as a right. They don't have to give a reason. Now that's not. It's sort of sitting there in the Dutch Parliament, but it's the first move in the Netherlands to to move towards a rights model rather than a, a sickness or a, a or a medical model. Uh, and I think it will probably eventually go through something along those lines. Uh, and it, it draws a lot of attention. We took a hundred and four year old chap to uh, to Switzerland a while back called David Goodall. He was quite a flamboyant character. Who's he would not, He wouldn't. He wasn't sick. And he kept saying, I'm not sick, and I don't see why I should have to say I am sick to get help to die. Well, people kept saying, well, you must be a bit sick, you're 104. And he said, well, I'm not going to play the sick role just to get, look, surely I've earned the right at this age. I've, I've, I've lived 104 years. Now the time I want to die. Why can't you just say, okay, you're 104, here's the drugs? But, of course, they won't because you've got to say you're sick. So you say, well, say you're sick and he can help you. And he said, I'm not going to play, I'm not going to say I'm sick. So he came to Switzerland, we brought him to Switzerland from Australia, but in Switzerland that wasn't an issue, but it is everywhere else.
0: The conversations you've had, which I'm sure are many, uh, between those who want to have dominion over themselves in this way that are sick, actually sick, versus people that are just like, I'm done, Let's, it's time for me to check out, what is the percentage do you, do you feel like you have experienced?
1: Well, obviously, if you are sick, it puts a certain urgency to the question, and so I suppose most of the people or the commonest, the way we get phone calls from various places around the world every day from people saying, I'm in trouble, and that's usually meaning they've got sudden, they've suddenly got a diagnosis or a problem. But as I said, when I hold a meeting, which is uh, such as the one coming up in London, there will be a group of people there that aren't sick, and they'll be uh, pretty well healthy 70-, 80-year-olds, who will just see this as is an issue that they'd like to address. Uh, and in terms of the people who actually go about, and at the end of those meetings, I I suggest to everyone, look, go and get the drugs. Get them. You can get them. You've got to know what you're doing, but make sure you get them. Make sure you've got them and stop worrying. And mo- a lot of those people, a good percentage of those people, will take those steps, even though it's quite hard. Once they know how to go about it, they will set out to get the drugs and then then they'll feel a lot happier about it. And they often don't see them again, like they, but they don't come to subsequent meetings because that's all they want. That's all. The only, only thing they want is access to that information, which is so heavily censored.
0: In the beginning of your journey with this, you had to argue that people were in their right mm-hmm. minds for wanting yeah. to to take their own lives that's a tricky argument because again that's a philosophical concept more than a a factual concept unless you have somebody that's you know suffering from schizophrenia or something that is tangible
1: yes it is it's a difficult one it's an interesting one too i mean there's, a, there's still a view in medicine, in some not 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 a not a widely held view, but some people in medicine still believe that if you're asking for help to die, you cannot be of sound mind. In other words, the mere fact that you're asking, no matter how seriously sick you are, the fact that you're asking indicates some possibly undiagnosed mental malady that needs addressing in other words the the treatment should not be to help you die the treatment should be to address your mental illness and this this link between mental illness and a decision to end your life still has to be dealt with now what i'm saying is that okay you've got to be of sound mind or people say what is that well it's this rather i call it rather nebulous quality which psychiatrists reckon they're the only ones in the world who can actually determine Uh, there is some way that they can talk to a person and say yes this person has sound mind which means they're capable of making an informed decision now that doesn't mean you can't be depressed or you can't have all sorts of psychiatric illnesses the question is are those psychiatric illnesses so severe that you've lost the ability to make a sound decision in your best interests now i that's the way it, and that's the way it works now even in countries like places like switzerland you've got to be of sound mind and so that means that generally speaking when people turn up there to get help to die they've got to be able to show that they are they have mental capacity and that uh, the gold standard is this idea of going and spending 15 minutes talking to a psychiatrist who then signs a bit of paper saying yes this person has sound mind but it's a vexed issue and uh we've but uh, one of the one of the things we're trying to spend quite a bit of time with here is working out ways that we can use some sort of uh, an uh, artificial intelligence assessment to try and do this because I've, our experiences are that you can get three different answers from three different psychiatrists for the same person being assessed, and it's it it so depends on if you like the political baggage or ideology or whatever of the assessing clinician. And so this, uh, I would like to see something rather more neutral. So the idea of developing some form of uh, independent assessment of this fixed idea, and so we're working on the Sarko machine. The idea is that you will have to go and do your little online test. That will determine whether you're of sound mind. Once you've got your sound mind assessment done, then you can go and that will allow the machine, this new machine we're working on, to work for the next 24 hours. So it completely removes uh, this rather arbitrary assessment process for this this, this, uh, important quality of uh, mental capacity.
0: And you've written three books, is that correct?
1: Well, I well, I yeah. If my partner writes the books. I tend to put my name on them. But uh, yes, there's uh, there's been some books. There. But the the, well, the main book, really, the one that's causing the trouble, is the handbook. That's the Peaceful Pill Handbook. That's this guidebook that goes all over the world and tells people how to do it. Uh, the other books are really uh, background autobiography and some of the philosophy of of the the thinking. And in particular, I suppose, what interests I suppose some people is why did why did your why did the ideology where did your philosophy change because I started off being this person who really who really felt that the medical model was a good one I mean I I said I woke up heard about the new law thought it was a good idea yes if a person's terminally ill I'm a doctor I can go around give a lethal injection that sounds a good idea but I was challenged and the person who challenged me was an 80 80 year old woman who said to me or she was 77 she said look uh I want to die in three years time and i said uh and i want some help and i said oh yeah what's the problem and she said well no, i've got a problem i'm going to be 18 that's the time to die which i was a bit taken aback by and i said to her well hang on uh, well anyway i thought she was joking but it, uh, every time i saw her every time i went there had a meeting on the where she came from uh she was a retired french academic at the university and uh, after, when it got close in the year, she said, when are you going to come around and answer my questions about these drugs, about me ending my life? To which point I said, well, hang on, you're not sick. She says, you know that. And I, and I, I thought you were joking. She said, I'm not joking. She says, what? She said, I said, why don't you go and do something? Why don't you write a book? Why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't you go on a world cruise? And that's when she came back and said, why don't you mind your own business? She said, it's got absolutely nothing to do with you. It's just, I just want technical information from you. I don't want a sermon. Uh, she said, if you're going to come around here and give me a sermon, she said, "you're the and then she accuses me, you're the worst case of insufferable medical paternalism. You go around, you dole out decision, you make a decision whether you'll help people if they satisfy your criteria. It's nothing to do with you. You're just a technician. You've got information. I want it. What gives you the right to hold it back and dole it out? And I mean, that's quite correct. I was mortified and, uh, you know, gave her all the information she wanted and she ended her life when she was 80. And it it caused trouble in Australia because people said, yeah, look what happened. This is a slippery slope. One minute he's talking about helping terminally ill people. Now he's out there helping people who aren't even sick. Uh, but it was a fundamental shift in my thinking and that's when I started to say that this is this is much more than just than just having something set up for those people who satisfy those sorts of uh Requirements and these new laws that are coming in, the new law in Australia, they're kind of proudly saying it's got 65 safeguards. Well, I mean, 65 conditions you've got to meet before you're eligible. I mean, people have to run around circles, jump through hoops just to prove that they're eligible to use this law. So it's a law, and I suppose that's a good thing. But heavens, it's not, it, this is not a right. This is a, as I said, this is a, a restricted privilege.
0: How do you personally feel about death now that you've had all these experiences and had all these conversations for you personally? Not, not, oh, not, in, a, not in a philosophical way, but you yeah. personally, yeah.
1: Well, I'm not keen on the idea, I must say. I've been a person who, I mean, one of the reasons I went, I'm rather foolishly went and did medicine because I had a sort of a hypochondriacal background, I thought if I learn enough, I'll start worrying, and of course, all I did was learn about diseases I never dreamed existed, and so I was kind of—it was a big mistake. Um, so I'm not keen on the idea, but I do like the idea of having the comfort of knowing that I've got options, and I'm lucky in that sense. So I do have options. I know that it's a matter of just opening the bottle and drinking the drug that I can have the peaceful death when I want, and that's a good way to feel. Um, but uh, no, the inevitability of it is something that. Uh, I'm not. Look, I'm not. Uh, I'm certainly not welcoming it, but I do welcome the uh, feeling that I have that control, and I can certainly understand why others would want it too. And I guess I'm, that's just. And this is what uh, the academic, the French academic, Lisette Nego, said to me. She said, "You're in a privileged position, and you're you're holding that privilege to yourself." Was what her accusation was. Why do you decide that you've got that privilege, but why? But you're not prepared to to share it. And I mean, that's a. That was a fairly, I think, accurate uh criticism of my behavior and it's why i changed my position but pretty well all of the new laws coming in have that uh have that restriction there which means that uh, you have to satisfy those conditions so uh, i i think we'll see a move as as i said the new dutch idea of tired of life legislation those over 70 get the drugs but it's going to take a long time before the rest of the world i think catches up to where i think it should be and that's with something like the swiss model
0: do you have uh, any type of religion or spirituality?
1: No, I, I know I'm an atheist. I, uh, I, um, I don't see any. Uh, I don't find any reasons, uh, compelling reasons to have a spiritual or, or sort of beliefs about some sort of supernatural entity. Uh, most, a lot of the people I talk to, of course, who are dying, do, and they, and they, for various reasons, don't have much trouble reconciling their views, their spiritual views or religious beliefs with their decision to die. Some do clearly where they see it as some violation of a fundamental law that life belongs or is granted or provided by God, a God. That's not uh, my own feeling. I, I, I've i kind of, I don't mind people opposing the ideas that I would talk about. My view is that they shouldn't try to use their particular ideology, if you like, to try and insist that their views are mine. In other words, Yes, if you want to do that, if you want to live on forever and suffer as much as you like, that's your business and you're right. But don't tell me I can't have this choice. I would, I want the right to be able to say, yes, it's a gift. It's a precious gift. Life is. I'm not saying it's not. But what sort of gift is it if you can't give it away? That's not a gift. That's that's a burden. And uh, so I reserve the right to be able to say, okay, precious gift, good. But now's the time when I want to divest myself of this. of this uh, precious gift, and uh, if you don't want to do that, if you have your own views about how precious it is and who will make that ultimate decision, maybe some uh, nebulous idea of a god—that's your—that's fine. That's your business, but it's not mine.
0: How many members are at are in the Exit International database? Uh,
1: it's it's a combination of people who join the organisation, of people who are subscribers. To, the handbook which gives us information which is changing all the time. We update all the time as an online subscription so people get the latest information on drugs and where to get them and all this there's about 20,000 or thereabouts around the world.
0: And I assume that your main point is if you're going to do this thing, do it gently so that you don't go out and, with pain and suffering. Like if somebody were to unalive themselves by hanging or – Wrist slitting or taking a bunch of pills that may or may not work and all that. Your your whole thing is gentle, calm, easy, peaceful, peaceful. dignified. Peaceful.
1: The two criteria: peaceful and reliable. That's what everyone asks. I say they want it peaceful and they certainly want it reliable. They don't want to mess around on something that might work. They want to know that it will work. And so, reliability is is a critical criteria, but so is peaceful. Uh, and uh, as I say, there's plenty of reliable things which aren't peaceful, but they don't want that. They want something which is peaceful and reliable. So when we set out to start publishing information on this, that was the thing that we had to try and make sure that we weren't talking about methods or means or strategies which which were not peaceful and not reliable, although they all vary, but we, we developed a sort of an index calling the RP Index, Reliability Peacefulness Index, and we published that, which gives us sort of a, a numerical rating, to the various means because some things are more reliable and some things are more peaceful and up until now pretty well the gold standard if you like the holy grail has been the barbiturate and, uh, and uh, that rates pretty well it's peaceful and it's reliable and it's uh, the biggest problem there is it's, it's damn hard to get uh, because of its heavy restriction no that's what people want to know about they want to know what drugs work what drugs don't work and not to make mistakes. It's easy to make mistakes because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and people want to know they're getting good information so that they can believe in it and trust it.
0: I watched a couple interviews with you from a couple of years back, and it was interesting to me that many of the people interviewing you would get very fired up, angry with you. And I'm wondering. Mm. Have you had people come after you? Let's say one of their loved ones does kill themselves, and then do they come after you saying, "Oh, you talked them into it," or "You, it's, it's all because of your fault"?
1: Yes, I mean it. it comes up, it comes up with the, the when you when you publish the material, and we've got this criteria: you're got to be over fifty. But of course the the. the the book bleeds. Uh, it's in digital version. We can't. Uh, we found uh, there's there's pirated versions everywhere on the internet. Often pirated by people who then change the contact details within the handbook about how one might access, uh, for example, the drugs, so that that directs you towards people who are busily cheating individuals of their mind so and sometimes younger people of course have got access to these to these pirated versions and they've got good information and they've killed themselves we've got plenty of uh, people who have been often the parents of perhaps young adults who have ended their lives who blame us for even having this information out there in any form and us saying well we try to restrict it to the over 50s doesn't cut much ice with people who see that They are of the opinion because they're suffering, they're grieving, they're upset about their maybe adult child for taking their life prematurely as they would see it. And us saying, well, they were adults and they did what they uh, obviously thought was the right thing doesn't work. And so we've got a lot of anger, a lot, but there's enough angry people out there that we are constantly having to deal with these attempts to try and close us down is one of the reasons why we very publicly promote this 50-year-old Criteria to try and head off some of that, some of those accusations. But it's a difficult, it's a difficult issue. We, it's almost impossible to to try and restrict Once you once to make the material available in a digital form, the fact that it will bleed uh, is very, very difficult to control. And uh, we run around and tell people to take issue, take down things, and ask people to take them down on various websites. And we have some success, but. It's difficult, I suppose. The main thing is that we—the uh, information is changing rapidly. There's, the book's updated every month. There's new information goes in, and I suppose, in some ways, that's in—is in, in a sense our protection. The new information is always the best, and that's the stuff. But that explains why it's a, its an extremely popular handbook.
0: Again, the, I, the concepts of death have always fascinated me. Just the way humans deal with it. You know, we go watch slasher movies. Or will jump out of airplanes and land and say, ah, I cheated death this time. When they know in their minds that one day the parachute might not open, or they go climb up on a mountain, or they go do any number of things, drive their car really fast, or do drugs, drink heavily, all this, smoke, all these are slow suicides, and yet they don't. it's not looked at that way. And I find that so fascinating.
1: Yes, it is interesting the fact that we we quite tolerant, we're very tolerant of those sorts of, uh, if you like, dangerous behaviors. But the one dangerous behavior which we will not tolerate as a society is a person's decision to say that they want to end their life.
0: Yeah. I have to laugh at the irony of the fact that you couldn't hold the meetings because of COVID, because if people came and got COVID, they'd die. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <That's> a- <laughs>
1: It was really, it was really the. Well, yeah, it was. I mean, a, that's
0: just that's a funny irony to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think that of course the trouble is that uh, most of our members wouldn't have cared less. They would have thought probably getting COVID was a good thing. So there were, there was this issue that we had to try and deal with to try and. Uh, give the appearance that we're being very responsible. And also there are all sorts of uh, restrictions on venues and the like. We had venues saying we couldn't host a yeah, meeting. Of course. It's over, only now that we've, we're about to be able to do it. We've got a big series coming up in Australia and New Zealand coming up with, uh, uh, and that's only just been possible. So that'll that'll run for a few months there. Uh, and also the issue of travel's changed. So now it's a different world, um, but different world or not, the fundamental question amongst People in this age bracket is still, I wanna know where do I get where do I get the drugs from? That will be the big question.
0: Yeah. How might people find you and find exit international?
1: Exit is the website and peacefulpill.com is the uh, is the other website for the handbook because the book is called the Peaceful Pill Handbook. But as I said, there's spam, there's spammers out there. There's a there's a, a website which is registered called peacefulpill.com where it's got two L's in peaceful, and that directs you immediately to a scam organisation which will try to sell you uh, fake drugs and end of life options. So you've got to be careful. It'll be very accurate in the uh, spelling, uh, such as the such as uh, fact that there's a obviously people see it as a rather lucrative growth area. That is the people that are trying to trick and cheat elderly people into making fake purchases of something, which is uh, purports to be an end of life agent.
0: I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, You I will post links on HeyHumanPodcast.com. I'll probably get some letters, but that's okay. Uh, I think that it's important to have all these conversations. People have a right to the dominion of their bodies and, I think it's unfortunate when young people whose brains aren't even developed yet, you know, 18, 19, 20, I wouldn't like to see them make those choices. So it is, I suppose, good to know that there is a limit at 50 and above, but then if I'm 47 and diagnosed with ALS, certainly would want that door to open for me
1: we try to have a sort of a,
0: uh, a clause in which says if you're seriously ill
1: uh, of course the age doesn't know it doesn't uh, that age restriction doesn't apply so there is this issue but no it's a it's a fixed issue and it will continue to go uh, on and uh, i don't think it's going to lessen in its intensity what i predict we'll see is that in america for example you're going to see a constant series of legal challenges to water down or to make more flexible the medical laws that you've got. Uh, and it'll be an interesting issue, especially in the context of other forces that are in, for example, the U S to try and roll back some of the uh, freedoms of individual autonomy.
0: Mm-hmm. My dad, as he gets older, he's, he's got scoliosis really bad. A lot of, of his functions and things are are quite fine, but I know he's in a lot of pain with the scoliosis and I said to him, we were having a conversation. I said, oh, I just want you to live forever. And he said, what a cruel thing to wish on someone. Why would you wish yeah. that for me? And it really stopped me in my tracks because my love for him is so huge. But absolutely, whatever he would need or want, I would facilitate when it comes to that moment. Will it be difficult? Absolutely. But it, what he wants is what's what matters to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, I I would uh, suggest that he might feel better if he has access to the means that he can put safely in the cupboard and stop worrying about it.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm and thank- let me know, and I can I can I can I can post a tweet link.
0: Oh, wonderful! And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.